What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got the Hunter Marsden, hey. Jake Dello, Good morning. Gabby Magnuson, hey, yeah. and Alex Audi. G'day. So uh, just one quick hit conversation point before we get into it. I wanted to talk briefly about spheres of influence because very few people understand them, but they people use the term all the time. And I've done... Yeah, uh, academic research about this. This has been like my contribution to debates about international order was conceptualizing spheres of influence, how they work, how they're contested, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it, of course, has import in the context of like Sino-US uh, international competition. And it was all triggered by a piece I saw in the Boston Review a few days ago, a week ago, I don't know. The piece itself is like a reprint from a piece last year during like the height of the pandemic, but by this guy in, in Guam named uh, Julian Aguan, and he talks about in very poetic terms, it's like a very poignant um, essay to read, but he talks about how the Pentagon has been for like well over a decade at this point gradually trying to relocate 5,000 U.S. Marines from Okinawa in Japan, where the presence causes serious political problems for the Japanese, to Guam, which is a U.S. territory, but not a U.S. state and not an independent nation. And the relocating those forces requires building uh, a series of live fire training bases in Guam. And to do that, they have to basically level large amounts of, of forestry and uh, public land. Anytime you have to build a military base anywhere, it's going to be a blight on the environment, yeah. right? It's just the nature of the beast. And so Julian's writing this piece that's bringing the sentimentality and injustice of what's happening home. And it's like, okay, you're exploiting the fact that Guam is not an independent nation to reload to like appease one of your allies where troop presence creates political problems but you can make the guamanians the chamorros eat political problems because you control them and so you know that he talks about in the piece about so much protests and domestic political resentment about this a series of construction of military bases and the leveling of forests and stuff, but like they can't do anything about it. All they can do is protest about it because they don't have sovereignty and they're not a state with representation that a state would like. They're not in the federal system the way other territories are in the United States. And he had this all, of course, is justified ultimately on the back of competition with China. And the there's a nuclear bomber base in Guam that, again, it's not that the people have chosen this, it's that the United States chose to put it there. And it makes Guam itself a target of nuclear armed missiles in scenarios of conflict with China and especially with North Korea. In the nuclear crisis with North Korea in 2017, there were maps that Kim Jong-un unfurled showing the trajectory of missiles hitting Guam, among other places. And the only reason it was trying to hit Guam was because of the nuclear bomber base. And so, like, can you think of something more fair than, like, nuclear destruction without representation, you know? And that's what, exactly. that's what we're exactly. talking about. And so the piece, the bottom line was he had this amazing one-liner where he says, 
no military on earth is sensitive enough to perceive something as soft as the whisper of another worldview. And that's the indictment of militarism, like in a nutshell, right? But then on top of that, like the reason why this matters, like I said about the Sino-US competition, Guam is part of an American sphere of influence. We don't think of America as having a sphere of influence in the pernicious sense. And this is why it matters that there's like an academic concept underlying yeah. this. People hear the word influence and they think like, well, you know, powerful people are influential. Like what's, if, you know, if you're powerful, you're going to have influence. What's wrong with that? Or like, that's inevitable, right? Not, not, no. Like that's the colloquial understanding of influence, of spheres of influence. The conceptual analytical understanding is that spheres of influence are forms of relationships, order, relational order that are constructed out of practices of control and exclusion. Okay. And that makes, this is why it gets confusing because anywhere you find in international relations practices of control and exclusion, you have a sphere of influence where a foreign power is exclusionarily controlling the foreign policies of another state, a local state, and other states are recognizing that. That's spheres of influence. And that's compatible with various forms of hegemony. That's compatible with balance of power orders. That's compatible with empires. It's most common with empires, in fact. Um, which is why you get a conflation of like spheres of influence and empires. But these are two different kinds of things. So you can find spheres of influences in lots of places, which is why even while America is not an empire per se, it has a sphere of influence because it control in the Pacific, because it controls literally formally, officially controls to the exclusion of all others, Palau's foreign policy, Federated States of Micronesia's foreign policy, the Marshall Islands foreign policy, Guam's foreign policy, and it has less formal control over other places where it does not have an, a sphere of influence is like Japan, South Korea, right? Because these are countries where they conduct their own foreign policies for one, but America's influence there is not exclusionary. There's lots of sources of influence over those countries foreign policy, right? Including domestic constituencies. So this is not an argument that America is an empire. And it's not an argument that every place where America has bases is part of its sphere of influence. All of that stuff is caricature. But there is a bona fide, for real, unquestionable sphere of influence that's American in the Pacific. And we don't, most American policymakers are not even aware of it. That nobody talks about it analytically. It's not folded into any arguments. And it's an extension of the fact that America has military primacy, untrammeled primacy in the Pacific. And one of the things that's happening now is that China's political expansion, its expansion of influence into the Pacific, this is happening in a context, in a space where America still has military primacy. So you're having this where you like, I think maybe we've talked about it on the show, but like the dual hierarchical order of Asia, where it's like you have America as hegemon in the security realm in Asia. You have China as the hegemon of the economic realm in Asia. And the regional order for the past generation has been this uneasy dual hierarchy where it's like for the first time in history, you have not a hegemonic order, 
but a a dual hegemonic order, right? And then individual states have to navigate that. And that's how you get hedging, right? Because it's like when you're having to obey in, in a simplification, but you're having to like obey two hegemons at the same time. And the only thing that makes it works is that these hegemons are functionally differentiated. These hegemonies are functionally differentiated, right? Economic versus security. Well, in the Pacific, that's converging, right? And maybe not just in the Pacific, but for sure. Because there's no, like, China has no realistic way of challenging American military might in this area. But what good is the military might if China can subvert the entire thing and flip it politically to be its own geopolitical sphere of influence, you know? So they're like, there really is a clash here. And it's kind of orthogonal to these, like, caricatured notions of, like, Sinocentric order, Chinese hegemony seeking versus, you know, American defense of liberal international order. Like if that's your narrative of what's happening in Asia, then of course you're not really aware of how this dynamic is playing out in the Pacific. And so like all of this brought was brought to the fore by this piece on Guam, but it underscores like the only reason this is happening in the first place is because we're having contested it basically spheres of influence. So that was like a long surprise, a long intro rant, but uh, it seemed important. Um, Hunter, you had some mm. thoughts about it? Oh, uh, mostly I was curious to see how you would link spheres of influence with this because because the uh, militarization and occupation of Guam, to me, seems more to stem from uh, neo-imperialism. Neo the exclusionary yeah, aspect, yeah. I think you're really driving home is the fact that the United States controls these territories, entire foreign policies. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I was curious to hear how you thought um, of that sphere of influence as exclusionary regarding external states, um, namely China here. Yeah. Uh, but I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, the I, foreign I totally policy agree. part. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like China has no, as a result of American occupation of Guam, China has no play in Guam. China is not a factor in you know, Guam's domestic politics or the exercise or not. Like Guam is uh, all about, it's an America problem, right? Frankly, caused by America. I don't know. It's like a slightly different thing, but it's a thing that you can only really make sense of if you understand that like America does have a sphere of influence. And the reason why you don't ever like hear about it is because to acknowledge that is fundamentally incompatible with this idea of like free and open whatever, Indo-Pacific, that's not free and open. And it's not just America, like New Zealand exercises a sphere of influence over the Cook Islands in Niue, right? Are they like treated slightly better than uh, Guam? Yeah, but it's still exclusionary <laughs> control. Yeah, like it's still exclusionary control over their foreign policy, you know? Like they're not treated as independent nations by any means nor are they 100% treated the same way as like North and South Island are, you know? So yeah, like in Australia, it's the same thing. Like, so there are spheres of influence, basically. The Pacific is basically a series of spheres of influence. The Asia Pacific, Indo-Pacific. Right, uh, and, and we can name the French. Yeah, yeah, fucking French. So the spheres of influence thing is like the first thing in my mind whenever I hear about Europe, um, is their interest is peaked in Asia again and they're like wanting to come back. First thing I think of is like, oh, well, last time, last time they were here, first of all, it didn't go well. But also the foothold that they have, the only like 
presence that they currently have are these legacies of these older empires with spheres of influence inside them. Van, I need to ask, you say legacy of older empires, and you've made, you made the comment that the United States is not an imperial power. But just from this situation alone, basing it solely upon this, I haven't seen a more imperial move been taken in a long time in foreign policy for the United States. You know, yeah. like moving armies well, directly into a territory that you know is going to be on the firing line to appease an ally. You know, and these people don't have, like you said, no representation. So they don't have any choice to fight this, even if they wanted to. Yeah. It's, there's something really imperial about it and it stinks, you know? So I actually agree with that. It's imperialistic. And the way the left mm. use, this, this again has to do with definitions, though. Like the way the left uses the word <laughs> empire is exclusively yeah. as a term of abuse. It's not an analytical yeah. term. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, <laughs> the way I understand empires, like Dan Nixon defined the the standard on this basically for like what's legitimate as an analytical definition, which is like, it's a relational structure of core and periphery where that the core exercises control of the periphery through local intermediaries and the periphery is not well connected to other parts of the periphery. So sparse intra-peripheral ties core periphery local intermediary and like that sounds very like i don't know scientific and anodyne or whatever but that's a standard that you can like hold around the world and like apply it to different situations as the yeah. litmus test mm. and it it does describe all of the empires of old you know and it does describe frankly and dan has admitted this like or flagged this it does describe the u.s relationship with iraq since 2003 it's an imperial structure you know same with the u.s and the government in afghanistan um but that's not the same as like all the rest of u.s foreign policy so like one of the complications that dan has that a lot of leftists of course do not appreciate is there is imperial content or whatever in u.s foreign policy it's just not as pervasive as you think and all things that are bad are not empire like that's his move which i sort of that's that's sort of what i subscribe to i guess yeah to, to jake's question you know i think he put it exactly right you haven't seen a move as imperial or imperialistic as this for a long time and that's i think precisely part of the problem with wrapping our heads around this is that a lot of these territories and possessions were acquired in the age of empire guam you know, dating back to the era of Teddy Roosevelt mm. uh, was a possession of, of the United States where we stationed warships uh, transiting to the Philippines. Yeah. Another colonial possession acquired from the war with Spain. I mean, a lot of the history here was really rooted in the era of empires. We just no longer describe it as such. There's a great book by Daniel Immerwar called How to Hide an Empire, mm. um, which really challenged my own thinking on a lot of the United States mapping territory um, and just the way we're taught this in history is not to think about it as an empire so much as sort of benign extensions of the state uh, across the globe without really picturing on a map. You know, these are islands and, and bases that we've controlled by force for, for decades. Yeah, 100%. The book is amazing also and uh, hawaii is would be the exemplar of this too but the hawaii case gets whitewashed quite a bit because we eventually incorporated it as a state 
So we gave it full state's rights. It's like a formal part. It has all the rights and obligations of any other member of the union, you know? But that move really, I think we talked about this in an older episode, but like it disempowered the ability of like indigenous politicians and indigenous activists in Hawaii to actually challenge the like literal theft of the monarchy, you know? So like in many ways, Hawaii was like the most unjust case, but it's harder to challenge in the way that these other ones are conceptually because it's formally a part of the union. But yeah, the I think Imrawar calls it like the pointillist empire. Empires as like rays of light or like lots of little points on the periphery that emanate from the United States. But it's not just like this global thing. It's not everywhere. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for Prediction Market this week, question one. Following the ousting of Benjamin Netanyahu, finally, might I add, and the election of Benin in Israel, will we see a cessation of offensive military action against Palestine before August this year? I know it's really hopeful. But yeah, I mean, I kind of think so. This coalition, the one of the fragile things I was listening to CFR's president, Richard Haas, who frankly, I don't like, uh, but he was talking about this BB getting ousted. And he was saying what I think is right, that this coalition that finally pushed him out of power is extremely diverse. And that is probably going to be its undoing. Like it's a very fragile coalition. Yeah. So it's like in August, will this coalition still be together? Bibi is apparently being a surprise, like an asshole about all of this. And he's promising he's going to destroy the coalition. And (laughs) he's not going to go quietly, like especially because he has uh, charges pending for multiple crimes. So like, (laughs) yeah, he can't afford to just give up. You know, I've heard a lot of people saying that it's the beginning of a new Israel and that I don't know. It's it's, it's very easy to say. Yeah. But the fear I have, and I don't know how much of a fear it is for you, Van, is if this coalition does collapse, how likely is it to you that um, there'll be a pendulum swing to the right of Netanyahu? I don't know. I worry about that. I certainly can't put odds on it, but um, it's something. It's it's a worry. <laughs> yeah. Question two. Following President Biden's comments regarding China at the G7 summit earlier this week, will we see any practical actions taken by China in retaliation? And here's question three. It's a bit of a cheat. Hmm. And if so, what may these actions be? Basically going to short circuit question three, because I don't think there will be (laughs) any reaction other than the Chinese condemnation, which already came out, you know, to be honest, you know, I think I've been very clear, like I'm not a fan of the rivalry language. Uh, I don't think it's we get a lot of mileage out of talking in those terms or framing our this competition that way. Um, But like I did not see anything coming out of Biden in particular at the G7 that I like disagreed with about China. Maybe I missed something, but it all seemed like there's nothing like he should be calling out human rights abuses and the Uyghur oppression and the you know, snuffing out of democracy in Hong Kong. Like those things are reasonable positions, you know, NATO got a little bristly and said some kind of like over their skis shit. But uh, as far as like Biden and the U S it seemed like on China, it was all to be like, they avoided 
talking about rivalry, even though it was kind of a subtext, and they focused on the specific grievances, which is, you know, it's the best you can do without actually having a strategy. Yeah, well, sweet. Let's prediction market this week. Time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. So cracking into my two of the week, my first tweet is from Ken Klippenstein, a reporter for The Intercept. His tweet goes, the problem with billionaires not paying taxes isn't even primarily that we need the tax revenue. It's that they use that wealth to manipulate the political system. There's no such thing as an apolitical billionaire. I'm not aware of a single one who doesn't spend large sums of money in lobbying. I mean, first and foremost, spot on. And secondly, Van, can we assume that you're in the eat the rich category when it comes to billionaires and that you agree with the tweet sentiments? Uh, yeah, dude, you, you, don't, you can't see it, <laughs> but I'm staring at a coffee mug from the Warren campaign that says billionaire tears on it. <laughs> like, That's right, really good. It's right in front of me, okay? So, like, I'm kind of like agnostic on the question of like, should billionaires be allowed to exist? But I'm definitely like, I have that the monopoly capitalism. One of the things that like the Marxists sort of get right is that monopoly capitalism is sort of where this train of capitalism, it's a stage of development. It's kind of inevitable, right? As you have this race to the bottom on price competition and profits shrink, the capitalistic strategy to survive becomes about controlling markets or controlling uh, particular domain so that you can set prices and regain profits and that's that's a natural tendency in capitalism and that's like what we see with the big tech firms and all of that right and so like there's this inexorable evolution toward monopoly capitalism and the only thing that can stop it is actual democracy having the economy exist within a functioning democracy that checks it, that redistributes it, that limits its power. And like one of the problems with the old school way of being uh, progressive or being a leftist, there's a way of thinking, and it's possible that Warren was gonna do this, which would have been um, problematic, even though like I'm in her camp, but there was a way of thinking where it's like, you have to let capitalism do its thing because it's so powerful. It generates so much productivity, right? But you just need to make sure you're taxing it appropriately so that uh, you can redistribute the gains of capitalism. And the problem with like, that sounds fine in terms of like trying to get more equality in the world. But ultimately, when you accrue riches, you're going to try and use those riches to empower yourself to do what Charles Tilley called opportunity hoarding. Right. You're going to try to lock in a favorable system of privileges that you're getting. You don't want to lose that, which means that like you're never going to be able to get to a system where you just have capitalism doing its thing unfettered and then you redistribute through taxes because the people who are benefiting from the unfettered capitalism will prevent the redistribution through taxes, which is precisely what's been happening in America since like the 70s or whatever. It's this like you can't half of American politics prevents you from redistributing wealth. And so you can't ever exploit capitalism 
for progressive purposes if the mechanism is going to be taxation. And the reason is because of what Ken Klippenstein is saying here, which is like, it's the billionaires who are going to ex use their monopoly power to exercise a kind of monopoly influence over politics, you know? Anyways, yes, I agree with that. You keep saying you're not a Marxist and then you come out with <laughs> stuff like this. Um, I knew it was coming. You, you, you've essentially just said, and I couldn't agree more, that there is no real mechanism for change in the United States system under the current <laughs> way we do things, right? I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> Maybe it's For a sure. generational thing. Like I can't subscribe to a lot of the like fixed positions and fixed explanations that come with Marxism and especially Marxism Leninism, you know, but like, and I'm not down yeah. for revolution, yeah. but like there's so much that is useful that comes out of like the, the Marxist frame or not Marxist, Marxian. I was going to say, Van, is this something that you're seeing that, like, generation-wise, we're moving away, sort of, we're moving towards, like, your kind of view? Is that something you're noticing? If that makes sense. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, like, the the problem with the older generation and, like, the boomers is, yeah, white supremacy is in there somewhere, but it's really that they fucking all own houses, and the houses, and they, they have, houses. yeah, their wealth is all like middle-class wealth is a hundred percent tied up no longer even in the stock market it's just tied up in their fucking house or their house is and so they depend on an inflated housing market for their own like well-being and they're i mean the boomers especially are fucking out for themselves but like that means that like it's a relative gains thing intergenerationally here. They are hoarding the housing market and depriving the rest the next generation of you know affordable homes and the ability to build wealth through their home, which is kind of the model that has existed for a generation now. Um, they actively view us as competition. Yes, and they they like don't acknowledge it. You know, and the only reason that this is allowed to go on is because they don't acknowledge it. They don't think in terms of intergenerational competition. They just act in terms of intergenerational competition. Um, and that's what makes it work, you know. And so, of course, like younger generations not on board with that. Younger generation cannot buy fucking homes anywhere, anywhere. Unless they depend on the intergenerational transfer of wealth. Parents yes. Buying children homes, which, which is, which is ultimate pretty common in like dc yeah and that's fucking aristocracy that's opportunity hoarding you know that's how you get an oligarchic class and you get the rich defending class privilege you know and on that note that's a pretty good transition into my this next is not week. an anti-capitalist podcast by the way it's just that there's a lot of fucked up shit in the world that pretty much bleeds into my next tweet of the week which is from emily Breyer, a professor and writer in peace and Appalachian studies. So her tweet goes, academia hates poor people. And I mean this literally. Every step of academia is trying to keep poor people from the academy. That anyone who grew up poor or working class in academia is out of spite and against all odds. And I definitely threw this as a pitch considering we're all at different stages of academia and that it would make a good discussion, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's pretty true. I feel like that's my experience. You know, like I came out, I came from like lower middle class and, you know, I was enlisted in the military and that was the alternative basically to going to community college that I ended up becoming an academic was statistically 
impossible. I mean, like on a, in a demographic sense, I probably should have ended up in jail. The idea that I'm doing what I'm doing seems ridiculous. And my specific path, I would not, I would not argue that it's replicable. Like I don't, it seems very idiosyncratic to me. Academia is this high prestige thing and you have to spend so much time reading and writing and being part of these social networks and developing alumni contacts and learning what other people are who are relevant are saying in different literatures and then writing and speaking in the same mode and according to the same logics and using the same research designs that they do. That's a very elitist thing. If you come from the hood, that's so fucking foreign, you know? That's a lot of shit to learn on top of the substance of like just, the, you know, like exposed, being exposed to the pedagogy of your discipline or whatever. On top of that, to have to learn the shibboleths of life in academia and to be like everybody else. And if you're starting from the bottom, your chances are you're not able to access the Ivy League or access top tier schools anyway. Right. I never went to an Ivy League school. I've got like 10 degrees. I never went to a single highly ranked school. I never even went to a school in the top 100. Right. And in the US or especially not the world. And it's because of lack of opportunity. Like, when could I have done that? How could I have gotten there? Where would I have gotten the fucking money for it from? You know, like the military was the only thing that unlocked all this stuff for me. And even then, it unlocked access to higher education, not to elite higher education, you know? So like, no matter how you slice it, I, you know, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I'm very lucky. Everybody can't be lucky. You know, that's a ridiculous way to achieve success. And so like, this, I feel like this is totally right. But like, of course, academics don't think of themselves as being anti-poor, anti-working class. Kind of is, you know? There is this. And then, interestingly enough, there is that uh, image of the poor grad student. Hmm. Like, how does that work and how does that reconcile, you know? Yeah. Well, the poor, this is the thing, like, the poor graduate student is basically, like, investing in themselves. And they're doing it on the promise that one day they won't have to eat fucking ramen all the time and have <laughs> yeah. have no central AC and heating. That One day that they can have, like, normal bougie lifestyle there's an expectation that they're what the way that you are in grad school is not how you will be forever you know and the the logic or the bet the reasoning is like i'm investing in myself i'm building my own human capital if you want to think of it like that <sighs> but you know you can't control these things there's no clear ladder there's not like a systematic pipeline to go from grad school to job you know um so there's like a lot of risk in it still like there's no guarantees um, and so all you can do position yourself, like do all the things that are in your control to do to maximize your own value, you know, exploit yourself in a, in a sense. And that that's how you get into like best practices of like, what should I study? What should I network? Where should I volunteer? All, what kind of job should I take? All that, all those kinds of questions then come into the picture. But yeah, it's, it feels like a rigged game and like, I just got lucky and uh, I think for people to look at someone like me and say anything other than I got lucky is not seeing the whole picture. But anyways, you have to do this, right? Like, what's your alternative? What, <laughs> what are you going to like kill yourself? 
Like you gotta, you have to play the game. So you gotta go to grad school. So there you go. For a lot of people in my generation as well, it's almost a necess- necessity for us to go into grad school to get the kind of jobs we want, even just as like as a step up. And so, <laughs> how do you do that when it's so difficult to get into grad school and all that? I also want to throw the pitch out there to anyone else because obviously everyone's you know different levels of grad student or sorry different levels yeah, of student no, I, grad student. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. It seems like your generation, and I, I sort of count myself as a bit older, is sort of between um, Van and, and you all, uh, probably closer to Van, Van's age. Uh, but it seems like the undergraduate degree just doesn't mean what it used to and doesn't suffice for a competitive career, at least in the policy world or, or um, you know, related fields that the master's degree is now essential and required. Uh, whereas for me, it was probably a bit more optional um, to get started in the DC think tank realm. I didn't necessarily need it where I ended up at Brookings, you know, it was kind of the norm, but like plenty of entry level people would leave and then go do a master's, um, at various stages. But it seems like now it's just so cutthroat and the market is so saturated with advanced degrees and even PhDs competing for entry level work in DC, for example. Yeah. It's not even so much. I, I, I think that's right. Like it's not so much that you, you learn, you get some access to unique knowledge at the master's level. It's really that everyone applying for the job you want to apply to has a master's degree. So you're going to clearly not measure up if you don't also have the master's degree. It's, it's the fact that like everyone else is doing it that creates the necessity for you to do it, you know? Right. It, it drives up the value of these degrees, but it also sort of, there's an inflation here because with everyone now pursuing masters and PhDs, there's mm-hmm. so many of them that it's really the employers, the employers have the advantage because everyone is coming to them with advanced degrees. You know, it's, it's impossible to stand out. Yeah. Yeah. But PhD it also is the value of, of uh, advanced degrees. It, it's starting to feel, this is an overstatement, but it's starting to feel right now that a PhD is what a master's degree was 20 years ago in the in, right, right. in the practitioner market anyway like the non-academic market all right well that's depressing all right i found my tweets one is from uh pete stegmeier who's a comedian i'm 100 percent sure because this is hilarious he says uh i spent most of my 20s in a cult like a full-blown shave your head and leave your family to live on a compound kind of cult. It got pretty <laughs> wild. They put stuff in our food to stop us from getting horny. And they, <laughs> and they made us all dress the same and sing songs about our leader every morning. You've probably seen them in your town trying to get more people to join. You might remember seeing on the news when our leader told us to kill Osama bin Laden. There were many times when I was in the military where this is exactly how I saw it. You know, like we are part of a cult. This is this like I recognized it was a particular brand of fascism, you know, and that's not how we like to frame these things because it doesn't sound patriotic. But like, holy shit, when you put it the way this guy put it. You know, what else is there to say? Shout out. Yeah, but like Van, I don't like making fun of these people because they all have guns. Yeah. They know how to use them. <laughs> like, it's like they, they tr- specifically trained on how to fucking shoot people they don't like. 
and Marxist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> first, they yeah. first they came for the Marxists. Is the <laughs> um, yeah? I mean, the also you know they only put stuff in your food to stop you from getting horny in basic training, and then after that they stop that. So they're what do they put in your food? I forget what it's called, like saltpeter or something. There's it's yeah. it's a chemical that they put in the food and like it was universally accepted that this is true, but I don't know it for a fact, but I know it from experience <laughs> six and a half weeks in basic training for the air force, even longer for the army and for the Marines. And during those six and a half weeks, you know, zero boners, man. It's, <laughs> it's because they put something in the food. There's an alternative theory that like your body just doesn't, go into that kind of like arousal mindset when you're in survival mode. But over six and a half weeks is a long time to be in survival mode, you know? Um, so like, I, I think it's true. I think they do put something in the food. I love tin hat band. It may be my <laughs> favorite persona on this podcast. Oh man. So the uh, second tweet is much more PG uh, from David Santoro. Well, it's a combination. It's from David Santoro, who's a president at Pacific Forum, buddy. Uh, and then he's getting tweeted on top of by Evan Feigenbaum, who's a friend of the pod, uh, vice president at the Carnegie Endowment. And so David says to people arguing that we need to improve our relationship with Russia because China is the quote unquote pacing threat. I say, please remember that Moscow has a say in that. And then Evan um, piles on top of that and he says, not the only problem with this, but go ahead, folks, and play a few more games of Stratego. And what they're both pointing out here is like this when you're not like when you're playing this like geopolitics game on a board like fucking risk or something, you can say stupid stuff like, oh, well, we need to co-opt Russia so that Russia doesn't align with China against us and that kind of thing. Um, and we're, this is all should be about China. A lot of assumptions going into that. And the only way that that really makes sense, given the history, is if you think you're playing Stratego or risk or whatever the fuck. Right. And so uh, Evan in particular is pointing out how like the strategy class, the establishment, right. The people who are like doing the Kabuki theater of high politics, basically they're in their own little world where they really think they're playing Stratego diplomacy risk, you know, and they're not taking into account the richer reality from which good strategy would derive, right? Because the foundation of all good strategy is a proper realistic diagnosis of a situation. And when you think, when you're viewing everything in terms of the fucking grand chessboard, you have a very stripped down interpretation of reality. And that, that cannot help but produce bad strategies in the end. Um, so anyways, I thought this was a good tweet. All right, time for Armchair Analysis, where we look at a different article each week. Okay, for this week's Armchair Analysis, we've selected an article in The Atlantic by editor Daniel Engber called Don't Fall for These Lab Leak Traps. Uh, so I spent the weekend reading a few articles on Wuhan lab leak debate, and I think this, this is a good and timely one. So... Engber points to three traps uh, that he sees occurring in mainstream media debates and sort of the larger analytic community. The first he points to is called the no evidence trap. 
Um, so he says, be cautious when you see people saying or starting their arguments to say there's no evidence uh, either one way or the other, um, because it's setting up their argument to say there is more evidence for this. Um, when I first read this article, I thought he was saying essentially no new evidence has, has emerged to support the lab leak theory, hmm. but opinions have shifted dramatically. And I found myself agreeing with that generally. Yeah. Uh, but on closer rereading, I think what he's saying is there has the evidence has changed. There is evidence for both sides, really, um, either the natural origins or the lab leak theory. Um, and he admits that evidence of the lab leak theory is growing, but it remains circumstantial. The same can be said for the natural origins. So uh, the jury is still out, according to Engberg. The second trap he points to is what he calls the mad scientist trap, which tends to frame these Chinese scientists and virology as diabolical. In reality, uh, Engbert emphasizes that the possibility of a sort of innocent mistake or what he calls banana peels here happening in vir viral labs. For instance, um, you know, scientists go to collect samples from a mine where there are bats with viruses. This is um, something that happens, uh, bring those samples back to the lab, something along the way goes wrong. And um, rather than sort of this diabolical, uh, you know, deliberate creation of viruses to expose to people that some innocent fuck up might have happened. He says that this or scientists he interviews say this is probably more probable, more conceivable. Basically, he says the urge to blame scientific hubris for scientific problems uh, is bipartisan, um, when in actuality, uh, the banana peels or, or fuck ups might be to blame. Um, moving on to the third trap, he, he calls the culture war trap, I think extends generally to framing the lab leak uh, proponents or, or those who were early advocates that it was not a natural origin. Um, as brave whistleblowers and that you know the, the media totally warped this from the beginning and this overwhelming consensus forced uh sort of this anti-trump view of, of anyone who said it was a lab leak and not natural origins to shut up um and that's still pervasive in the debate on on the lab leak i think and has kind of clouded the opportunity for a, a more open discourse on this so uh, long story short, I, th I think this was a helpful piece in sort of parsing some of the different angles and agendas that you see. Um, you know, for instance, I read a couple pieces in the Wall Street Journal, which were very sympathetic to the lab leak theory. Um, they do talk to scientists, you know, there are plenty of legit scientists who are pushing this, um, but the evidence is not always concrete. So we have to be very careful about how we frame our existing understanding of this uh, ongoing investigation. In my mind, it's still unresolved. Um, wonder if you guys have more specific thoughts on this. I fucking hate this topic, but this piece was like one of the few pieces that I thought was actually worth reading and kind of like analytically sound slash humble, but still telling you things that you didn't feel like you were going down a rabbit hole of you know, like the culture wars or something crazy. Yeah. Like the only thing I would add is like, there's nothing we can't with what we know now, we cannot draw any clear conclusions. We cannot know, right. What the origin of the fucking virus was. And if, if it was fucking China, the, the only thing that like, this has been true for a year 
as soon as this shit happened, Matt Pottinger was on TV and Peter Navarro was on TV saying that they knew it was China. Some of them flirted with bioweapon arguments, right? Like deliberately kind of thing. And to be able to say that without producing evidence and for the Biden administration to come in and query the intelligence community and still there's no conclusive evidence that shows that hypothesis, that validates that hypothesis, means that that hypothesis was being stated as fact last year when it was not clearly established as fact. And so you cannot just believe that. Anybody who endorses that view is taking a very clearly political stance. It's an ideological stance in the same way to as to dismiss 100% that it could have been a leak from a Chinese lab or whatever, right? And so like anybody who is acting and speaking conclusively is is out ahead of evidence. This is just true. And it's probably going to be true for a long time, perhaps always, you know? Um, the thing is, there's a little bit of what aboutism in that. I may I'm not I try not to pay too much attention to this debate. I haven't seen very many people 100% dismissing the Chinese lab hypothesis, but I've seen lots of people 100% embracing the Chinese lab hypothesis, you know? I don't know that this was like the even the way this piece interacts with this these competing claims, it acts as if there are these two huge camps. And it seems like there's one huge camp and then another huge camp that is basically agnostic or skeptical or uncertain, you know, like I, that, that was, that's kind of like my read of it. But basically we don't have enough evidence to draw firm conclusions, right? And the fact that the intelligence community would come out and be like, we still don't know. And it's been a fucking year. We're probably not going to find out ever. And that's just the way it's going to be. So I almost feel like talking about this is a bit of a disservice because it's like a distraction. We can you can make strategies without knowing clear causes. Like if you're uncertain about the cause, but you have it narrowed down to a couple possibilities, you can build a system that's robust across all of those possibilities. You don't have to know a single monocausal narrow origin of something in order to guard against multiple possible disasters in the future you know so i don't know i thought it was a very good piece though like i hate this topic and this is like the best thing i've read on it yeah fair enough i, I think um it's important to embrace ambiguity and uh, be comfortable with what we don't know yeah. and, and saying that we don't know it rather than taking such a hard position based on really uh uncertain evidence well i believe it was dmx who said if you think you know then i don't think you know <laughs> All right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. Right, so for Ask Me Anything this week, we've got three questions. The first one is from James Constant from Leiden University. That's a good question. Um, the conservatives in South Korea are definitely more open to the quad, not because they're more anti-China than the, the, the left in South Korea, it's mostly because they're more willing to be transactional about using things that others want to get what they want. So like they will, if, if there's a possibility of like telling the U S Hey, we'll join the quad and we'll be part of your like anti-China shindig, but we want 
more extended deterrence, whatever the fuck that is. Or like we want a harder line on North Korea or we want you to facilitate us to get nuclear weapons. Like if they think that they can get something from us in exchange for joining the quad, then they'll do it. If we're not willing to offer them anything, like if we're not willing to play the transaction game, then um, they probably won't. So the second question is from a grad student at Pomona College. Do you know anything about Progressive International? Are you on board with them or think they're worth advocating for? Yeah, they're like, um, they were launched in like late 2018, I think. And uh, they are a hybrid NGO think tank, kind of like, they're kind of like an advocacy organization, but they do some think tank analysis type stuff. <sighs> to be honest, like, I think that a lot of their policy positions are sound. They're definitely leftist. They're, it's weird because they operate from a, a socialist template for foreign policy, but they're trying to own the label progressive. So it's like progressive means it's like very capacious, but what they're doing and what some, some like further radical leftists are doing is trying to like embrace the label of progressivism as a way of like mainstreaming their own positions. And there's a little bit of that with them. And like, I don't have, on the face of it, I don't have a huge problem with that because they have very sound um, positions or like morally correct positions about debt relief for the poor and centering the global south. And they focus on a lot of issues that would address like anti-corruption and kleptocracy and inequality. And they're on the right side of like, you know, a lot of racial issues. The problem I have with them, one, their mission is explicitly post-capitalist. And I don't know that I'm there yet or like I'm agnostic about whether capitalism is the the core problematic. There are problems in capitalism. I don't know that I'm willing to like narrow it down to being capitalism. So like I'm agnostic on that. And then the other part is like what I see them doing is endorsing a lot of radical language as part of their policy platforms and part of their policy analysis. And um, even though like the substance of a lot of it, I'm totally uh, comfortable with, it's kind of like the defund the police stuff where the rhetoric has this um, hyperbole and um, friction built into it. Like defund the police is, especially when you look at what they were specifically advocating for as part of Black Lives Matter, it was sound and I think reasonable and necessary, albeit challenging, but um, the rhetoric is not popular strategy. You cannot, it's not realistic within American politics to think that defund the police is going to be like a winning political message, right? It's going to be a winning political message for some niche purposes, right? Like moving the Overton window, but it's not going to be something that people rally behind. And it's kind of like that with a lot of progressive international positions. And like I say this as somebody who's sympathetic, there's a mismatch. Like when I'm viewing it as a strategist, I see a mismatch between their vision and the means by which that they're trying to achieve it, right? Which is these, these particular policy positions that are expressed in a particular kind of language. And so I don't think that they're articulating an agenda that can be a global transnational progressive movements agenda. I don't know what that says about me. I don't know what that says about them. What I just, all I know is that like, I don't think that they can be successful, a global progressive movement. You can have idealistic visions when you express your policy agenda 
in terms that are inherently full of friction or inflammatory or like confrontational with existing power structures, it's just going to be a hard slog. Like the deck is stacked against you. And so like, I don't see the, the effectiveness of what they're doing. I, I question it basically, but I don't know. They have a lot of big name people involved, like Chomsky, Giannis Varoufakis, like a bunch of, I don't know. I kind of like, I've, I had to like study them a lot for this book that I'm working on. Sweet as. Uh, so for the third question, it is from Alan Ray's. I was wondering if you can explain your criticism of the Biden administration's celebration message for the anniversary of the US alliance with the Philippines. I thought it was pretty plain slash not offensive. Is this about Duterte? Yeah, sort of, but also more than that. Um, yeah, like if you're not paying attention what's going on in the Philippines, Duterte is basically emerged at this point as an as an actual dictator. He just happens to have been democratically elected. And the well, actual- he was a dictator from the start. Yeah, but I mean, he basically, no, yeah. Like... The thing is, a lot of normal people, a lot of like normies of the establishment have been willing to look the other way, not criticize him too much. They're like, they certainly won't criticize him directly. So and Are we talking about the Philippines establishment or, or American policymakers? No, like Southeast Asia watchers. Although, the, you know, the Philippines, like Philippine, Filipino, like the pundit class, it's like quite small, but they were not saying critical things publicly about Duterte either for a long time. It's only been since the pandemic that they've really taken him to task. And the the establishment, like the bureaucracy, defense ministry, the land, like the aristocracy, now people are speaking out against him much more because he's well, becoming... He's, a he's arrested uh, senators and journalists who speak out against him. So, I mean, th there were definitely establishment people talking out against Duterte early on. It's just, I think he's muzzled and empowered um, variously to, to uh, sort of cultivate a certain aura around him. Well, it's layered. It, it's the like freedom of expression oppression at the same time that you're engaged in like extrajudicial killings and a drug war and the unbelievably botched fucking COVID response, you know, now it's more, he's more exposed. Everybody kind of sees him for what he is and he's the president, dude. Right now, the Biden administration is getting a lot of pressure from Congress. A lot of people don't know this to cut security assistance funding to the Philippines. This is a very live issue. The establishment foreign policy people basically don't talk about this because there's no incentive to, because they're just unequivocally pro-alliance, which is what happens when you're in a liberal internationalist, right? Like I, there are pros and cons to liberal internationalism, but this is one of the blind spots. It's like you have to be uncritically supportive of the fucking alliance, you know? This caused a lot of friction on, on Twitter. It wasn't just me calling it out. Like a lot of other people were calling it out too, but Biden had this like congratulatory message about, you know, 75th anniversary of Philippine independence and celebrating the alliance. And not only was there no mention of the ongoing authoritarianism happening within our ally country, but there was no recognition whatsoever that Filipino independence was from us, that we were the empire, that we were the oppressor. Yeah, yeah. And those two things, and this is what the fucking establishment guys don't get, those two things are the same through line. They're interconnected. One only happens, right? Giving Duterte a pass only happens because you also don't acknowledge your own history. 
This is the entire history of America's relations with the fucking Philippines. You know, I'm not some Filipino nationalist about this. It just sounds like it because it's super fucking unfair. But this is how fucking Reagan did the Philippines dirty in the 80s. You know, supporting Marcos, the uber kleptocrat at all costs. And it's, yeah, it's yeah. always because of some larger rationale. Oh, we need fucking distributed access. Oh, Cold War competition with insert enemy. Right. Oh, fucking it's jihad. Oh, it's China. Oh, it's Soviet Union. Whatever the excuse is, there's always a fucking excuse. And at the end of the day, we're given fucking weapons to a dictator and it's super fucked up. And it's only possible because we don't recognize our own goddamn fucking history about being imperialists ourselves. I don't know. That's like maybe a bit emotional, but it, no, it's, <laughs> it's really not. It's really not. This guy, this guy Duterte ran the devout death squads. And so it's not unreasonable to get emotional about the United States funneling weapons and support to this guy because he's the only reason that they're there. Like, don't you for one second think that Duterte has enough balls to stay in power if he is the most powerful nation on the planet breathing down his neck. And that's yeah, the thing. It's like, we're not using, we're not using our political capital. We're the patron to the client and we're not exploiting that superior position to do anything good in the Philippines other than arm the Philippines to be able to better fight China. And like, that's what this all gets stripped down to. It's so fucking disgusting. It's so fucking distorted. And like, this is, I think to normal people, they thought my reaction and a lot of people's reaction to Biden's very anodyne statement was like disproportionate or whatever. But it's like, because we're bringing all of this historically aware baggage to what's going on. And one little statement, one little tweet that seems very innocent can betray your entire worldview, your entire agenda and how you read history. And that's, that's like what happened. So it's not that like, it's not like having the Alliance is bad inherently. And it's not like saying good things about the Alliance is bad, but doing that in a context where you're also self-censoring about the authoritarianism that's happening and self-censoring about the history is Orwellian. That's liberal internationalist Orwellianism, yeah. no? I mean, what yep. the fuck? So that's all I got, I guess. <laughs> well, that's going to do it, folks. Uh, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to buy us coffees. Shout out to Gabby's parents for a uh, sweet coffee gift. And if uh, you want to rate us on iTunes or whatever, please do. But do it with fucking five stars for the love of God. All right. Peace. (laughs)